Well, when I was in sixth grade, uh, the summer after my sixth grade year, that is, um, I uh, was, was using this uh, newfangled technology called rollerblades. Um, and uh, they were so, in 1991, I mean, they were hot. Um, and uh, I was on a cross-country trip with my grandparents uh, and my cousin, and uh, we, were, uh, we were going across country in an RV and uh, packing rollerblades, of course, along the way. And <clears throat> we, uh, my cousin and I decided to go rollerblading. And uh, we, we were going along, having a great time, came upon this huge, exciting hill. And, uh, and it was just, like, compelling. And so we just started to go down it and started to go faster and faster. And momentum, momentum, so much power, uh, so much... Uh, thrill and um, and got got to the bottom still standing up and I remember just being like please don't fall please don't fall um, and I don't know if I made myself fall like self sabotage or if it was just the stones indeed but in any case like I totally biffed I totally tripped and uh, and my and my wrists went forward and my knees went forward and like I just got so scraped up. Um, there was significant uh, blood, there was significant stones rubbing into skin and flesh, and, um, and uh, it was painful, it was not only like a painful recovery, it was just a painful cleanup. Like if you know, like when you got to scrub the stones out, it's like so hard, it's so painful. And, um, and it, was, it, was, it was dramatic, and I wanted to tell the story, and I, and I, I wanted people's sympathy, uh, and I kind of needed people's sympathy. I needed people to take care of my wounds and for my wounds to heal. And uh, for a long time, you could see the outline of the scars on my wrists and my knees. And even today, there's the faintest little thing. <laughs> faintest little, if you want to introduce yourself after the service, I'm right up there by the coffee, I'll show it to you. <laughs> um, but you don't have to live very long to, to accumulate some battle scars, some of which you can see, some of which you cannot see. Some of you have made the choice to care for vulnerable people, whether they be your own children, someone else's children. It's a thing that a lot of people do in this neighborhood. It's incredibly admirable and beyond this neighborhood. Um, maybe, maybe they're disabled. Um, in any case, you're caring for vulnerable people, and, and, and you're realizing, like, this is like, this means that I'm going to carry some scars that, that, that others who haven't made this choice won't carry. And it's just hard. It's just hard to care for vulnerable people. And, and you're carrying some scars that come with lo- trying to love people that, that hurt you. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of racism. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of sexism. Maybe you've just been, you just experienced plain old discrimination and it's left you with some kind of scar. Uh, your scar could be, your battle scar could be physical or physiological. Maybe you have chronic sleep apnea, chronic depression. Um, maybe you have, maybe you have, uh, you, you've lived through cancer, you've lived through chemotherapy and like there are, there are both physical and, and, un, and non-physical scars that you're carrying because of that. I think a big one that, that a lot of people carry is you've lost someone you really cared about. You've been through a tough breakup. You've been through a, a very difficult death. And, and like that is a scar that 
no one can necessarily see with their eyes, but it's incredibly real. Um, so what are your battle scars? In, in, the, in this church, this congregation this morning, there's undoubtedly going to be all kinds of battle scars. Some of them, like mine, if you look in hindsight and you're like, wow, in hindsight it's kind of you know, negligible. Others are more on the, no, this is extremely important kind of scale. You can feel the scars to this morning. Um, when I fell at the bottom of that hill 23 years ago, um, I, I'm, I'm really glad that my wounds were dressed. I'm really glad uh, that, that I took some time and the others helped me tend to those wounds and seek healing for those wounds. Um, and it was really, really important for me to not pretend that everything was okay. It was so important for my own health that I did not pretend like I didn't fall, like I didn't have a, a scar. Um, it was good for me to take it easy. It was good for me to get sympathy from others. And it was good for me to accept the fact that I had a temporary disability. It was really important. And the same is true for our battle scars. Same is true for the ones, the scars we can see and those we can't see. Let's not pretend that our wounds don't exist. Let's not pretend uh, that we have full treatment, that we have full healing, that we have full capacities. Let's not pretend that would be, that would be not only uh, unhealthy for you, but also for the people that you interact with. Let us also acknowledge that every battle scar, be it physical or emotional, can, can be incredibly seductive to our imaginations, incredibly seductive to our imaginations. We are going through a series on the imagination called From Fantasy to Reality. And we're asking the question, what does it look like for the imagination to be fully connected to God and fully connected to God's story, his good, true, and beautiful story? So often is the case that our imaginations, which are so hungry for meaning and hungry for identity, instead of attaching itself to God and to God's story, it curves in on itself and entertains itself with stories of, desire, of our desires and our pain. Smaller stories, private stories, fantasy stories. We've gone through uh, many of these stories, and you can hear the rest of them on our website where our sermons are posted. But our imaginations, it's this capacity to see what is unseen, whether it's what we're going to have for lunch this afternoon or what our calling is to see the unseen. And, um, and, and it's hungry for stories that make sense of our life, hungry for stories that give us a sense of self, of identity. Our, imagina our imagination asks, who am I? And our battle scars answer, you're a victim. Our imagination says, who am I? What is my calling in life? What is, what is my life essentially about? When you peel all the layers back, what does my life mean? Our battle scar says, you're a victim. You are your most intense suffering. That is the meaning of your life. That is the most intense thing you've ever lived through. That's the most powerful thing you've ever lived through. That is the most significant thing you've ever endured. And that is your, the meaning of your life. You're a victim. Um, so you don't just have a battle scar, you kind of are the battle scar. You are a battle scar. Um, so you're not just one who's experienced hurt and loss and victimization. You kind of are a true and lasting person who always experienced victimization. Um, and, and all we have to do to respond to this, it's really seductive, all, all we have to do is just play, play the tapes. 
play the tapes of, of falling on, at the bottom of the hill. I'm always the one who falls. I'm a clumsy guy. I'm always getting hurt. There's always people scattering stones in my way when I'm on my hot 90s rollerblades. Um, or, um, you know that time I saw my dad leave the house for the first time? That's just what happens to me. I, I am the one who has left. I, everyone important to me leaves. And, and I have no friends. I have no friends because they all leave me. They all reject me for some reason. When you finally know me, you're going to reject me. Or, you know, um, I was molested as a child, and you know what? People are always using me. For some people find a reason to use me and abuse me. That's just who I am. The disability I've had since birth and the, the good treatment I get, the bad treatment I get, the sympathy from others, the patronizing you know, behavior of other people towards me, that's who I am. I am my disability. It's where I get my sense of self. I'm addicted to people's responses to my disability. I don't know what it would look like to live without that kind of response. Why is this so seductive? It's because being the victim, like owning that identity as a victim, uh, affords us special feelings, special attention, and special privileges. The special feelings is it makes our life feel grand and tragic and dramatic, and that feels very special. That meets a need. Uh, it gives a special treatment. We, uh, if we can get others to co-sign on our victim identity... Um, they'll treat us more tenderly and more lovingly, and that feels good. They'll lavish sympathy on us, and sometimes it's just tempting to like use it as blackmail. Like, I've got this scar. Don't you dare not be tender to me. Don't you dare not show sympathy to me. Affords us special privileges. When we take on a victim mentality, we believe, I can live the life I want because I have this battle scar. Um, so... It, this battle scar is my badge. Whenever someone pushes against me to like take a sense of agency and responsibility and suffering even, I go, I, I've already done my time. I've already suffered. I'm not going to walk down that road. I don't have the power to. And so we back away from agency and responsibility, which is legitimately ours. Being a victim allows us to do that. That's why it's so seductive. It's so tempting. We lose our sense of God-given agency. Um, we can avoid the heaviness of God's blessing to, to engage the world in good and loving ways because we've gotten a free pass because we're the victim and nothing else. Um, so we play the tape. We play tapes of the old battle to avoid the current one. That's what a self-pity fantasy is. It's playing the tapes of old battles so you don't have to fight the current battles, which are hard. It's holding our past pain up close so that we can keep our real life at a distance and live in our privacy and live in our urges. Is it true, friends, that we're victims at our core? Is it true? Is that our real identity? Is that the life we are destined for. Are we our battle scars? Is there any daylight between us and our battle scars? Are self-pity fantasies the truest, most compelling stories that will ever be told about us? Or is there a truer and deeper story, no matter what our pain is? 
Is there a story that acknowledges but does not stop with our suffering? That incorporates but does not fixate upon our suffering? Is there a truer and deeper story uh, than our battle scars? Is there, is there a better and deeper marking for you than your battle scar? Is there a marking that goes deeper than your battle scar? If you had a really good reason to stop playing the old tapes, do you want to hear what that reason is? Would you want to know what that reason is? We're looking today at the life of someone who really wrestled with these questions. Um, and we'll see the choice that he made. It was really important for him and for many, many people around him that he made the choice that he did. And it's going to help us as we wrestle with our own pain and suffering. The man we're looking at today, his name is Elijah. A major part of his story was depicted today. <laughs> um, thank you to our readers who did that. Um, and uh, Elijah was the national spokesperson for um, the nation of Israel. Yeah, you can turn there in your bulletins. It's uh, the, the reading from 1 Kings. And I have to say that Elijah um, had a pretty special life. His life was like pretty daggone special. If you're, you know, I think he, I, you know, I was thinking about it. He kind of lived the, the, the life that a lot of millennials kind of dream about, you know. If you grew up like reading Harry Potter and, and, um, and like hearing messages about following your dreams and changing the world and not letting anyone stop you from your specialness, um, you would be so happy to be Elijah. Uh, so... So Elijah, as the national spokesperson for God in Israel, um, he had an enormous influence on public policy, but he, didn't, he wasn't compromised in the least, um, which is really rare. Um, so uh, he also, he traveled broadly. Um, he took a direct role in social justice. Okay, so he performed medical, uh, dramatic medical interventions, and he also took direct uh, a direct role in making sure people who were starving got more food. And so all of this, all of this was done in, in Elijah's career and lifetime. Um, one dramatic thing that happened leading up to this story is he, he stood up to the king of Israel and he said, it's not going to rain in Israel until I say it's going to rain. And then like Edward Snowden, he left the country and fled. And <laughs> successfully, they didn't get him. And, and like no one, the, the, you know, the Israelite NSA could not get to him. And, um, and they're all looking for him. They're all like so mad, you know, because there's a drought. He said it was going to be a drought. And, um, and, then he, and then he like, and then he comes back and, um, and says, okay, it's going to rain. And, and, and it starts to rain. And like now he's even a bigger deal. And so, so he's a pretty special guy. He's a pretty special guy. I mean, he was a spiritual man. Okay, he operated in spiritual power, um, and he was close to God. People could tell he was close to God. Um, and all of, this, all of this specialness can get isolating. And I, and I think it, Elijah refers to himself in a couple different instances in his story as I, even only I, right? And you know that when someone refers to themselves as I, even only I, they're operating with some level of grandiosity, Okay? <laughs> And, you know, the, the signs of isolation are starting to, to poke out and, and leak out. You know, the self-pity, the I, even only I, the self-pity starting to kind of like, you know, you can kind of smell it in Elijah. Nevertheless, he's really operating at God's power. So, look with me in First Kings 19. 
So Ahab is the guy, is the king. Ahab is the guy that Elijah was like, it's not going to rain, drop the mic, leave. Ahab is the one who had to hear that. Okay? Jezebel is the real king, is the thing. Is Jezebel is his wife. Jezebel's really in charge. She's really the one running the country. Ahab is her special helper. Um, uh, so, um, so anyway, Ahab goes and tells the real boss what Elijah had done. Um, and what Elijah had done was pretty dramatic. In that day, very few people in Israel worshipped the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who's revealed in Scripture, the God who shows mercy and compassion, who's real, who's personal. Most of them had said, you know what, we're tired of that. We really love worshipping this really more, much more interesting sex God instead, Baal. Um, and the, this Baal, sex God, it, he's not only is it like more fun to follow him, but also like there's more fertility. There's this idea that if we worship Baal, our crops are, you know, we're going to have more babies and our crops are going to get better and financially we're going to do better. So Baal's kind of a sex god that's also in some ways like a money god. Very easy god to worship. Many people worship Baal kind of in a different form today, worshiping sex and money. But, um, but Elijah was like, no, we're not worshiping Baal. And so what he said was like, let's do this, okay? Let's in Israel just decide who we're going to worship. So how about all of the Baal priests, and there was 450 of them, so like more than twice what we have today, um, why don't the Baal priests offer a sacrifice to Baal, and then I'll build an altar right next to that, and I, I will offer it up to the God of Israel, Yahweh, we'll both call down fire from heaven, and we'll see who responds. And then we'll worship the God who responds. How, does, how, how about that? So they tried it. The Baal, the Baal prophets, for like all day, they tried all their Baal tricks. Baal didn't respond. Elijah lifts up his hands to heaven and says, O oh God of Israel, show yourself to this nation. Show, basically vindicate me, but also vindicate yourself. Boom, fire comes down, and in dramatic fashion, he shows up the, 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 the priests of Baal and takes action against them and kills them. So Jezebel worships, Jezebel officially supports the worship of the sex money god Baal, and she's really mad now. She's really mad. It says in verse 1, um, you know, Ahab's like, Jezebel, um, Elijah, he killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So just watch out, Elijah. I, I, I swear by my own life that I'm going to kill you now. So, so Elijah knows, like, okay, not only is it I, only I, but it's now, now, now Jezebel's evil eye is on me. The eye of Sauron has found me. And seeks my life now. And so he just tips all the way over into self-pity. Let's watch the progression. As, Eli as Jezebel, who's fresh and ready for a fight, comes against Elijah, Elijah moves into self-imposed isolation. Verse 3, it says this, He was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So it's like, hey, game's over, guys. Let's disband the team. Let's, you know, 
we might as well just give in to Jezebel. She's obviously the boss. He had, like, he had just seen God do something really powerful. Then he's like, no, 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 Jezebel's really the powerful one. And, and she's against me, so I'm basically dead. Let's just disband the team. My serve, I don't need teamwork anymore. I'm just going to go in the desert and die. And so he, he starts to, like Nacho Libre, wander in the desert. And he's lost perspective. Verse 4, but he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he, and he asked that he might die, saying, Is it enough now, O Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So just let me die. Let's see how everyone likes it then. Have you ever had a fantasy of your own funeral? Ah, uh, then they're going to appreciate me. <laughs> then when they see... My favorite ever of this depicted in um, a movie is Ralphie. After he said a bad word, they put mouth or soap in his mouth. And then his mom sends him to bed and he has this fantasy where like he walks to the house and he and he's got a cane and his parents are like, Oh Ralphie, what's wrong? you know, and, and they're like, You're blind, you're blind, what did we do? And he's like, No, I can't, no, no, no. They're like, No, tell us, and then he's like it was soap poisoning. <laughs> oh, no, Ralphie, you know. And, and then they cut to him, and he's like smiling, the tears running down his eyes. So just finish the process, God. Jezebel's mad at me. You mind, you're trying to kill me, I can see it. I am the victim. I have no agency. I have no power. I should just die right now. Um, now, God helps in some really practical ways to see you're not powerless. And here's some gifts, very practical gifts, some grace. If you're humble enough to receive these gifts and see these gifts, you'll know that you're not a victim. And so the angel of the Lord wakes him up and says, here's a meal. <laughs> Here, he touches him too. Hey, here's a, here's a like, comforting touch from God. Here's a meal from God. And here's a nap from God. Some of us, that is where it starts. <laughs> okay? We need a good nap. We need a good meal. And we need a hug. And this is a practical turning point for Elijah and his self-pity. The victim mentality and suicidal thoughts, I imagine, begin to melt away with some of these gifts from God. Elijah didn't need fire at that point. He needed God's practical grace. And then God sends him on a walk. And in and, uh, and, and verse 9 it says, uh, Then Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? See, now God's asking him, Play the tape for me. That's where, that's the next level of agency is when God invites us to play our victim tape, play our suffering tape, play our battle scar memory to God, to the face of God, as the psalmist so often does. Tell me your story. And what Elijah does is he lays out the story before God. And it's a storyboard. Some of you are familiar with how movies are made. It begins with a storyboard. It begins with a series of images that will eventually work their way into the real movie. And Elijah was like, here's the storyboard. 
here's the here's the here's the 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 landscape of the movie that I'm living out myself. And he says, I have been very jealous, verse 10, very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So God needs to change the storyboard lest Elijah live out the wrong story. Because his victimhood at the hand of Jezebel is not the final story for Elijah. And Elijah's sense of having no power, having no agency, is not true. It's totally not true. And so what God does is God brings Elijah to the mouth of the cave, and he lets Elijah experience some dramatic things. It says, God was not in the fire, the tornado which ripped up the rocks, the earthquake, but God was in a whisper. And somehow in that series of events that Elijah got to experience, Elijah encountered God. He encountered God's power. Somehow between seeing God's power and hearing God's word, Elijah's storyboard was beginning to correct because of the external power of God which is what victims need to not be victims anymore. They need power. That is what victims need. They need to be empowered. And God is always ready to take us when we are in a state of self-pity to help us heal and to give us power. But it takes humility to receive that power. We can stay and snivel by ourselves, or we can open up to God and be changed. God now gives Elijah truth, and I'll summarize it for you. And basically what he said is, says is, there are thousands of people who have not bowed the knee to Baal in Israel. There are thousands upon thousands of people. In Elijah's pain, he couldn't see that. God also mentions all of these people, including someone who's very similarly named, Elisha, okay? All these people that, that Elijah had the power to commission if Elijah wouldn't have moved out of his self-pity, he wouldn't have been able to commission all of these people. There was real ministry to happen. There was real justice to happen. There was real activity for the sake of other people that Elijah could only move into if he accepted that responsibility and that power from God. Now, we're in a different place than Elijah. The same God is available to us it's going to look a little differently for us than it looked like for him because of what happened hundreds of years later after Elijah when Jesus of Nazareth was crucified on a Roman cross and raised to life by God himself. Paul helps us understand what we need to do if we are going to move out of self-pity fantasies into a life of power under the authority of God. I invite you to turn to Ephesians, Ephesians 3 in your bulletins. This is a prayer for people like us. Whether you're here and you are walking with Jesus, you know Jesus, or whether you're here and you're still considering the claims of Jesus, in either case, this prayer is for you as well. And it's a prayer for power. 
Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that's verse 14, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So Paul is saying, I am praying that in the deepest part of who you are, when all the layers are peeled back, underneath the battle scar and underneath the victimhood, there will be power and that it will change you. And Paul references the spirit. The spirit is a member of the Godhead that brings the person of Jesus near to people, so near that they are in complete union with Jesus Christ. Paul is praying for them to know the power of that union. He says, um, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And this is mysterious language, okay? Um, and uh, if, if we try to explain away the mystery, we, we miss out on some of the, the poetic nature of the mystery, but at the same time, we need to understand it. So Paul says, I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in his love. This is a sense in which agriculturally we need to be rooted in in Christ's love and structurally, architecturally, we need to be grounded in Christ's love. And this changes everything. This changes us from the inside out. And ultimately, no matter how great our victimhood is, Jesus is able to incorporate it into his suffering and somehow in that transfer give us his power As we experience Christ's love, he gives us his power, and everything changes. I've been amazed as Laura and I have moved from from apartment to apartment, from house to house over the years in our last 11 years of marriage, that no matter what house we live in, no matter what weird quirks it has, or weird built-in it has, or doesn't have, or what color the walls are, or um, what the baseboard situations are, that somehow Laura is able to come in and make whatever place we live in incredibly hospitable. Some of you have been over to our, to our home and you've experienced this. She's able to take any dwelling that we have. It doesn't matter what the dwelling is or, or, or what's kind of wrong with the place. Laura is able to come in and because Laura is living there, everything changes. It's incredibly uh, uh, transformed to a place of hospitality, to a place that feels like home to a place where you feel welcome, to a place where you're able to connect with other people. And and rather than being distracted by the quirks, you're actually like charmed by them. When Christ dwells in our hearts, when we have union with Jesus Christ, whatever we've suffered, whatever very legitimate suffering we've undergone, whatever scars we're carrying, the love of Christ, when it's dwelling in our hearts, transforms it. And the love of Christ runs deeper than our deepest battle scars. And the love of Christ incorporates our deepest battle scars. And the love of Christ gives us power and agency to minister and help and serve other people through our suffering. Jesus Christ not only was a victim, he was also a victor. He was a victor. And when you accept union with Jesus Christ, which is available to everyone here, When you accept union with Jesus Christ, you receive his victory. And you incorporate his victory into your identity and your calling. You can't not do that and be united with Jesus Christ. That is why Paul is praying in this way. He knows these people have suffered. He doesn't want them to stay there because that's not their truest story. 
That's not their deepest story. That's not their calling. Neither is it yours. Your calling, whatever you've been through, whatever the disability you have, whatever the victimization you've had, your calling is to live out of the power of God through the love of Christ. To experience the love of Christ. To know the love of Christ. To chew on the love of Christ. That's the tape that you play. This is the tape that you play. In the quiet moments of your life, when you're tempted, so tempted, to just go, there's my battle scar. I'm a victim. No, this is his battle scar. And you are a victor. What I love about this text is there's something else here that's really important we don't miss. Verse 18. He's praying for us that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. With all the saints what is the height and depth and breadth and length of the love of Christ. We can't know the love of Christ unless we begin to comprehend it together with all the saints. And I love that this text falls on All Saints Sunday. Not planned, okay? By me, at least. (laughs) We need the baptized community to comprehend the love of Christ together. That means that we need to tell our stories. We need to open up our wounds and our battle scars and tell those stories. And then we need to tell each other the truest story. The baptized community needs to echo that story back and forth. We need to experience through other people the love of Christ, which gives us power. We cannot do this privately. It's not a private enterprise, and it never has been. Self-pity fantasies absolutely can be a private enterprise, can be isolating as it was for Elijah. Let us not stay in that private space. Let us come out to real people, to real community, to the real, embodied, baptized community. Let us join a small group. Let us come here on Sundays. Let us in formal and informal ways know real people, imperfect people, who are following Jesus together. I was reading this week about the life of Polycarp, who is a member of the baptized community, but now he is with Christ. He was one of the first people killed for his faith in Christ. Um, He had deep scars, but the power of Christ was deeper still. Um, Polycarp was 86 years old when persecution of Christians in Rome really started to ramp up. And um, there there was a gathering of people that wanted to see a powerful Christian die. And many of the Christians in that day looked up to Polycarp as a spiritual father, and they knew that. And so the bloodthirsty crowd compelled the Roman officials to track down Polycarp. And uh, Polycarp heard of this. He found refuge uh, at a farm in, in uh, kind of a suburban area of Rome. Don't picture Best Buy suburbs. <laughs> Outside of the city, in other words. And they found him there. And they even pitied him, but he didn't pity himself. Do you know what he asked for when the Roman officials found him? He's like, would you just let me pray for an hour? 
And they're like, sure. I mean, they kind of felt bad. The historical record even says so. And he stood for two hours and he prayed for them, for the power of Christ. And he prayed for the Christian community for the power of Christ. Can you imagine that? You're 86 years old and armed guards have come for your life to, to execute you publicly. And you're like, you know what? I'm not a victim <laughs> in this moment. I'm not a victim. Can you imagine that? That is what spiritual formation in Christ does. And for two hours, he, he prayed for them. And they were stupefied. How does he not cower before our swords? He eventually followed them to the arena. And, and he dared challenge the Roman authorities, not in a grandiose way, but in a simple, humble way from someone who is filled with the love of Christ. And, and, and the, the Roman official said, I have beasts. And Polycarp said, I do not fear your beasts. And he willingly placed his hands behind his back and let them set the fire. And he said, for 86 years he has been faithful to me. How could I deny him now? Polycarp was soon filled with the power of God that is on the other side of death, which awaits all who put their faith in Christ now. And he is cheering you on, friends. He and all the saints are cheering you on. And he's saying to you, you're not a victim. You are of the baptized, and you are filled with the love and power of Christ. And let that give you courage. Let the waters of baptism mark you deeper than your battle scars. Because that's what's true. And it's not only true, it's also good and it's also beautiful. And our imaginations need to see that. How might you minister through your suffering? How would God compel you outward? What is your circumstance where you say, you know what, I'm so tempted to curve in on myself and, and say, I, even only I, yet in this moment I will lift up my hands and pray instead for the power of Christ. Here's what Polycarp prayed before he died. O Lord God Almighty, Father of the beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have learned of you, I praise you that you have considered me worthy of this day and hour, that I might receive a spot on the list of martyrs who have drunk the cup of Christ. I know this will lead to my resurrection unto eternal life, body and soul, and the immortality granted by the Holy Spirit. I praise you, I bless you, I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom I give glory to you and to him and the Holy Spirit, both now and in all the ages to come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.